and we're live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the first webinar of our February 2015 series entitled By Any Media Necessary, Scaffolding and Sustaining Participatory Politics. I'm Henry Jenkins, Principal Investigator for the Media Activism and Participatory Politics Project, or MAP, uh, within the Youth and Participatory Politics Research Network, and I'll be our host for today. Throughout the series of Connected Learning Television webinars, we'll be chatting with a variety of organizations and individuals who are harnessing digital media to scaffold and sustain efforts we call participatory politics. If you're watching this, please take a minute to share it with your network. Today we're going to be talking to a great group of folks about what success looks like in participatory politics and how you keep energy and interest levels going after big events on moments in time. I should mention that each of the cases that we're talking about today are ones we encountered in doing the research for our upcoming book, By Any Media Necessary, Mapping Youth and Participatory Politics, which will be coming out in early 2016 by New York University Press. But before we dive into our chats, let's go over a, quick, a couple of quick details. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions, uh, either via the Twitter hashtag by any media or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. We'll do our best to address your questions right here in the Google Hangout. Before we get, begin, I'd like to give each of the guests a chance to introduce themselves. So we'd like to keep the personal introductions fairly short, so tell us just a little bit about yourself, and we'll get things going. So, uh, George, uh, Paul, why don't you get us started? Hi there. Uh, I'm Paul DeGeorge. Uh, I started a band called Harry and the Potters about a decade ago. Uh, we play songs about the Harry Potter books, and that ultimately led me to co-found an organization called the Harry Potter Alliance um, that uses fandom as a way to get uh, people civically engaged. Um, and... Uh, that's a nonpartisan effort. I've also uh, kind of dabbled a little bit in the partisan field with a campaign that supported President Obama's re-election uh, called Nerds for Obama. So that's that's me. Okay, uh, Ilse, why don't you give us your introduction? Hi, my name is Ilse Escobar. I currently work for the Miguel Contreras Foundation, but a lot of my works and now and in the past stems from my immigrant rights organizing. I grew up undocumented um, here in the United States for many years. I got here when I was three years old. And what that meant for me was <clears throat> always trying to understand what legality and illegality, illegality meant. And more importantly, as an immigrant who's undocumented without papers, without something like a social security number, what do we do to change that and bring people together? So that means organizing. That means a lot of dialogue with our community members and a lot of education as to how to make political change. And that has worked many times, and it's been rough and hard because not just because of um, the issues hard, but our own personal lives of mixed status families. Some of us are undocumented. Some of us have a social work permit. It's really complicated, but the most important parts that we're coming together here and um, as whole families, organizing whole families. Thank you. Thank you. So Zachary, tell us a little about yourself. 
Sure. Um, my name is Zachary Caceres. I'm executive director of the Startup Cities Institute at Universidad de Francisco Meroquín in Guatemala City. Um, we're at www.startupcities.org and what we work to do is to bring a startup methodology to political reform within municipalities to try to steer munis away from the kind of engineering mega project mentality that usually animates reform and towards uh, bottom-up experimental reforms at the, the neighborhood or muni level that allows reforms and municipalities to grow organically and to learn from low-cost, low-risk trial and error early on before they're, they're scaled. So I should note that we have a fourth speaker we hope is going to show up, but uh, is, uh, has not, we've not been able to get contact with her. So we'll, we'll see how that goes as the, the webinar goes along. And as she arrives, we'll introduce her into the exchange. Um, so we hear a lot about success as it relates to activism these days. And I've heard various people say, say Occupy was, not, was highly visible but wasn't successful, or people are debating the kind of Black Lives Matter, has it been about attention, is it driving a lot of attention to an issue? Obviously the juries have not come back as the way many of us would have preferred, and the result is that um, you know, people think, does, has it really mattered in terms of political effects? So each of you has been involved in an activist campaign. I'd love for you to share a campaign you worked on and tell us how you decided whether or not it was successful. What, were the, what was the experience of it? What, what made it a success or what limited its success? Uh, anyone want to get us started? Oh, I'll, I'll start off. Um, I thought it was, uh, this is such an interesting question, especially the, the way you reference Occupy. And um, it, in music, they, people talk about like the Velvet Underground, like, they're a band not many people listen to, but everybody who listened to them started a band. There's like, I think Brian Eno said that. And that's kind of like my perspective on Occupy is like so many people got involved and now I think we're starting to see like the fruits of that. And maybe Occupy didn't affect change at that moment, but I'm hoping to see that like it plants those seeds of change and you see grassroots efforts popping up um, at smaller local levels now that I think have been inspired by Occupy. But I'll, instead I'll talk about the work of the Harry Potter Alliance. Um, and you know, uh, this is actually one of the, one of the real recent successes uh, is net neutrality. Um, and that's an organizing effort that we've been involved in um, for a long time now and it's, it's started to um, become a, a much bigger issue within the last year. Um, and uh, let's see, I mean, one of the things that, so net neutrality, it's going to, Title II reform is going to happen. One of the challenges with dealing with this as an issue is that it has a lot of esoteric language involved, and um, it was a real challenge for us to translate, you know, terminology like Title II and forbearance and zero rating, like, these are the kinds of things that, like, boy, I don't know what that means, so I can't get involved in that issue. So what we did was we wanted to make a connection with our membership to this issue. So we started to look at um, YouTube and specifically like independent YouTube channels and YouTube creators who would be affected by net neutrality. And we used them to help translate this issue 
to their fans, to their fandoms. They all have their small pockets of fans, or large in some cases, very large, numbering millions. Um, and they help to translate that, um, that issue, and that brought an entirely new constituency to um, the, the sort of net neutrality fight that was unfolding in, in many different ways. There are many different organizations tackling this. Um, but we were able to focus on this one pocket and bring a lot of new people to that organizing effort. And I'll say that one of the other reasons that I feel like net neutrality has been successful is because, as, a, as an organizing effort, is because there's been just large-scale collaboration. We ended up collaborating with Public Knowledge, who is really like an insider in that they, they do a lot of like policy stuff. They work really closely with the FCC, but we were able to work closely with them, and, and one of the cool things was they helped translate this stuff for me, you know, as an organizer, like I didn't necessarily understand everything. So it was great to have a partner who could help translate. And that's what, what I've seen in following this is that uh, all these groups are working together. There's a listserv I've been on for like a year and it helped sync all these organizations and create these larger media moments for the issue. And, and that's, I think, why we're seeing success on it. It's great, great collaboration. Okay, uh, Elise, Elsie, I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's good. Um, uh, for us, it was really making sure that most recently getting the history together, right? So as somebody who's an immigrant, a migrant, understanding the United States trajectory as to why it is that there's immigration in the first place and understanding that with our community. So knowing that different you know, populations have been harness for low, cheap labor, not just, you know, right now, I'm, I'm a Mexican, I'm from Mexico, I'm not just for folks from Mexico, Central America, but also from Asia, right, so understanding the history with your community before you make the current, the most, a really difficult assertion, which was for the past couple, for the past um, years that Obama has been um, heading the administration that there's been two million deportations under his, his leadership. That's a really hard thing to say because we want we hope we had hope, right? As as we're growing, we're understanding politics that um, the Democrats would understand low income families, middle class, including middle class working families, but that wasn't the case. So we understood the history. So we had the power and language together to address these these devastating deportations. Um, Two million is huge. Two million also means many many deaths at the border. But when you deport people back, deporting them to um, uh, just a lot of a lot of violence and poverty that even the U.S. has to do with as well. As we know, we were learning about what foreign policy means together. Um, so that that was part of it. So how do we use all of that knowledge to say we need these deportations? Not only to, to we need them to stop. And even even when we know we're going to stop it for a few people, which was the executive order that happened recently, we had to do actions in order to do that. Civil disobediences. Um, bring in our whole families to be part of the process because even as we were doing those we knew the limitations and we saw the limitations immediately as we um, as the order was um, announced was that most people are not only left out about seven million people are going to be left out from what is um, what is called deferred deferred action uh, deferred deportation, not only they're going to be left out, they're going to be the new people because the deportation um, 
deportation quotas continue in immigration customs enforcement. So understanding the realities of that, we're going to get super involved, we're going to do as much as we can, but how are we going to continue to build that movement and build that reality, the reality that we live in, because we're going to give it our all and the fight's going to continue. Um, so that's that's um, that's kind of um, in December 2013, um, um, our organization, which was Dream Team in Los Angeles, we made sure to be be part of this fight, but also be really realistic about who was going to be left out and what that would mean. And it's been it's been good because everyone's talking about right now implementation, getting a work permit from this recent order, but um, we also want to make sure that 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 we're, we're, we're making steps in our language and our narrative and um, that our next steps are going to be more inclusive as possible because enforcement's going to continue, right? And um, this campaign was great. I learned a lot about, about just the political process in the United States, about connecting with other folks. Um, so, um, but it, like I said, it, it continues because my, um, a lot of family members that I have are left not are left out, and it's devastating because um, just because of the the way that the tiers are created, they don't even they can't even qualify for a driver's license in California, even though they're undocumented. To the very people, these different things are supposed to help, but these tiers make sure to exclude people and make it harder for those that are excluded. So, um, looking forward to continuing this fight. Since Zachary. Um, well, I think we we're coming from a slightly different uh, a different area because we're on this very kind of geeky frontier of uh, of reform. So we we don't we haven't even tried and and we won't for a long time to do any kind of mass media outreach. But what we did that was quite successful was very targeted media outreach. We were trying to figure out how to translate certain ideas that were very abstract, very theoretical, uh, into language that people would understand and that would attract the right kind of people and let people get connected with it. So uh, what we did was we just sort of altered our brand and our language in a series of different interviews and different publications and we sort of did it consciously as we were evolving the idea. Um, and what we saw was that certain things stuck and certain things didn't. And, and we kind of kept, we kept iterating through it and then finding that a certain kind of pitch and a certain kind of language and a certain kind of direction was resonating more with others. And we measured it very quantitatively. We just sort of left an open door on our website for people to submit their, uh, their interest to collaborate on different projects and as volunteers in this. And uh, we kind of had lukewarm, 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 okay, and then a huge of interest all of a sudden. And so we, we use this sort of prototype approach with our media to figure out how it was that we should actually talk about ourselves and also um, how it was that we should under, how should we understand ourselves what it is that we're doing in, in certain kinds of language. So in that way, it was, um, media was very helpful. Well, I, I, I'm struck here as we're part of a connected learning webinar series that learning itself seems like one of the central measures of success that each of you has talked about, that part of what you're trying to do is educate a larger public, first your, your own supporters and participants, but beyond that, the public at large, and also learn from each campaign so that it fuels the next, the next level. So, and that's a very different notion of what success is than, say, we flipped the switch in Washington and a public policy got, got passed. 
and that's something we've struggled with in our book is this question of is participation, is learning an end to itself for many of the new kinds of activist organizations? Or is success measured as I got this law passed, I got government to do something in particular? So I wondered if, if you guys had some reflections on that. Um, I, I mean, I think that's spot on, Henry. You know, with the HPA, I have always viewed us as playing a long game, and we work on a variety of issues, you know, um, from gay marriage to digital media rights uh, to uh, poverty or wealth inequality, you know. Um, so we're working on these issues, but the end result we're seeing isn't necessarily like that concrete win on like we're not going to solve economic inequality with a campaign um, but we want to see progress on the people who we're engaged with how do we turn them into better educated and more civically engaged citizens and one of the ways that uh, we're, we're really starting to kind of up our game is through our chapters program and we're really starting to focus now on leadership training and turning those people we have 300 chapters like across the world in high schools and colleges, how can we turn the people who are leading those, those chapter organizers, into better leaders? Um, so we've started our own leadership conference and we've started packaging up um, materials to help um, to help train up those leaders and, and if they're better prepared then they can affect more and better civic change in their own communities. Um, so those are the long-term investments that we're making, but I, I will say that what we really struggle with is ways to quantify those things beyond the numbers. Um, and I know we're kind of going to get to that a little later, and I, I'm, hoping, I'm, I'm hoping other people will have some good advice for us here, because it is hard to, to figure out how to quantify that exactly beyond like, oh, we have X number of people attending this convention or going through this training. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping we can talk more about that. I, I'm sure we will. So how about the other two? Any thoughts on the value of participation versus the out value of outcome as we, as we think about what measures, what counts as success at the current moment? I, I don't think that, personally, I don't think that the learning is an end in itself. I think um, sort of the, the only reason any of these organizations exist and the only reason that people really do this is because they're trying to affect some kind of change and they, they want to see a, a switch go off in Washington DC or they want to see you know something some kind of concrete thing happen I mean otherwise why spend all this money why spend all this time I, I don't know but I think the the struggle that many nonprofits have or many people just interested in social change in general have is that they um, they're not willing to learn right so they don't look at their idea as a product, and I know it sort of sounds like a very mercenary attitude here. I don't mean it to sound that way, but what I mean is that when you are developing a product, you have to go and change it over and over and over and over again and try to find its essence and try to find how to communicate it and who are the right people to listen to to listen to it and who's going to build it and who's it going to lead it and how, how much is it going to cost and can you find donors that are going to support it. All of those very kind of nuts and bolts practical matters and a lot of times if you're in the world of nonprofits or you're in the world of sort of social change what you get is we have this idea and we're really sure this idea is right this reform idea and then we're just gonna sort of hammer that idea over and over and over again until we hope it sticks 
So there isn't this sense of matching your idea to the world, which is where all that learning happens. There's mm. a sense that I want the world to align with my idea. And I think that, that's a, for me, my, my, I think it's a destructive mentality to have because to get to the concrete switch, in my opinion, you have to go through this process of learning. So the learning is valuable, but as a means to that end. Okay. Do you have other things to contribute? Yeah. Um, for us, what it's been successful was um, I'm somebody who comes from the you know the issue that um, not someone that's oh they're affected by it, but I am affected by it as is my family. So for us, what's been successful and what my current work is with the Miguel Contreras Foundation is um, our efforts are successful when the students and families are leading projects themselves and that we're making the space in order for them to do that. So. Um, this was my personal experience. People created these, fostered this leadership for me. But then, but then they also let me have a voice, and then using that to guide the work as we move forward. So, just as, because just because I've been around a little bit more, they have too, and their experiences are equally as important. So, while while I may think well, immigration is super important in our communities, they might have something else that I would never have thought about just because they're living a different type of lives. So it would be a disservice not to not to make sure that we're creating spaces where they're also leading. And for instance, one of our students that I worked with in the summer, um, her name's Angie, she's been great because she's approached our organization to come do immigration forums at her church. She's already set the date, she's making the flyers, and that's exactly what it should be because um, exactly like we said, legislation will pass and it won't be perfect. And the most important part is that we were fostering that leadership and growth and education, and um, that's my that's our goal right now. Great. So pulling, so each of your organizations, to some one degree or another, has a variety of stakeholders. Some of who are providing financial support, some of whom are the people you're working to make change for. So how do you, what kind of accountability do you have for those stakeholders about how they measure success? Um, well, that is um, something we, we've only recently started to address, or I feel like we're starting to address competently now. You know, you go through these phases as a nonprofit where you, you don't really know what you're doing. And, and now we're starting to get a grasp on documenting that success and demonstrating it to those stakeholders. Um, and um, I'll, I'll say by and large, we've, we've really stepped up our game as far as how we're documenting. And honestly, like, Henry, you and your, your group have been a great help there and an inspiration because you've been studying us for, for a while and you've helped to um, assist in that effort, you know. Um, but uh, it also does, I, I will say it does feel like we're up against this institutional barrier um, where they're uh, oftentimes looking for success defined in, in a more traditional sense that like did you win your campaign? You know, there's like that hard, very hard um, thing to do. Like, did you win your campaign? And so uh, it's not often that we get to say, yes, we won the campaign, because oftentimes we are going after um, systems change, you know, changing hearts and minds of people. Um, and I feel like we're winning that every day. Um, but as I said before, we're not, 
we're not actively able to quantify that yet. Well, the HPA did win a campaign recently, the Not in Harry's Name campaign. Yeah. Uh, how have you guys been thinking about what that success feels like and what how that might fuel other things you're planning to do? Well, I'll, I'll yeah, so we, we did just win a campaign. Uh, it was a four-year campaign, <laughs> and uh, everything about it is a, a learning process. You know, you learn how to keep fighting and stay positive over a really long campaign. And the, the campaign was to get... Harry Potter chocolate um, to dissociate itself from from child child labor, slave labor, um, and so Warner Brothers has agreed to make Harry Potter chocolate fair trade by the end of this year. It's a huge, huge organizing win for us, um, and of course, like we're kind of like buoyed by like a ton of uh, organizational confidence right now. Um, you know, it feels great to have that kind of win, and I, I'll say that we're we're excited. I think what the big takeaways for us, um, it's really demonstrated the value of a good partnership. You know, our collaborator on that campaign was Walk Free, an anti-slavery organization, um, and and we helped define the campaign, but they helped amplify it, um, and they brought a lot of people to it. Um, so I think those are the kind of things we're learning as we go. Um, but of course, having a great documented, clear win feels super good and you can bet that over the next 12, uh, you know, probably for the next several years all of our marketing materials aimed at donors and, and the like will be mentioning that campaign as like a, a touchstone and a, a real core victory. Okay, can others talk a little bit about accountability, multiple stakeholders, how, you're, how they might measure success differently than, than you do? Um. Well, I guess it's it's this comes with the territory of a nonprofit, right? I mean, whatever whatever anyone thinks about the morality of profits, the fact is, is it's a very easy, transparent tool to know whether you're you're kind of in the right direction by a certain a certain measure, right? So, without a nonprofit, you do feel a lot, in a nonprofit, you do feel oftentimes like you're you're kind of adrift without any clear compass of what the right direction is. I find though that a lot of nonprofits, and we we very closely we got very close to falling into this trap. A, a lot of nonprofits, they brag about their costs. So I think um, Paul was mentioning this, saying that oh, we we put you know a hundred people into such and such a camp, or we you know we sent out X number of books, or we printed you know a hundred thousand pamphlets or something like that. Sometimes when you when you talk to people who fund nonprofits, it feels like you're bragging about spending their money. Right, as opposed to, you know, actually bragging about having achieved something for the money that they gave you, because just printing books and handing them out for free or something—it's very hard to know whether that did anything or whether people just took them and put them, you know, underneath their coffee table or or whatever. Right, uh, but I do think that there are ways that you can kind of you can get close. Right, not everyone. I also agree with Paul that you can't always have very harsh kind of binary. You either won or you lose, and that's it. You know, it, it, it. What you have to look for are uh, whether you can do it with numbers or just with interviews or, or whatever. You have to look for evidence of a significant change in behavior. The problem is, is that oftentimes you're looking for either a one-off commitment, like I show up at a camp and then I go through a training camp, or I talk to you about how much I care about a 
uh, about a topic, right? Like I say now I care about slavery or now I care about uh, whatever. But talk is really cheap. It's very, very cheap. And when you all your metrics are based on talk, it's just it doesn't really mean anything, even if it makes you feel good. So what you look for, at least what we try to look for, is is there do people are they revealing their preferences by behaving differently? They they went to this camp or whatever, and now they do a different thing. They're now involved in the organization, or now they went and started some chapter, or now they went and you know I don't know emailed their congressman or whatever thing you're involved in. You want to look for the actual choices that they make with their time and their money, not just what they say or not just showing up and consuming the resources that your donors have given you. Uh, that's that's very helpful. Uh, other thoughts? Well, um, I agree with that in a lot of respects. But um, for for us, it I think parents and the students that we work with have different goals, but we also notice that they change throughout our work with them. Um, a lot of the times we'll ask our, our parents, what, what, what do you want to see? What, 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 what do you want from our relationship, from the resources that we offer, from the educational trainings? A lot of the times it's just um, because they, they have high school age students, how do we get them to college? Yet once we bring in the families in a room together, yeah, that might be the aim to make sure that their kid, um, their son or daughter, um, do better and um, get to college. But then we we've noticed that while that might have been the goal, and that's not what we asked for. That the question was, um, what resources, what help, what issues do you need? Um, but they always center around their son or daughter. Then things come out. For us, it's been a lot of education around the workplace. Um, workplace rights and immigrant rights. So even though the, the the core was they wanted to make sure that their kids are better, they had issues that come up too. So we made sh we make sure to listen and do assessments every time we're together with them um, to make sure that our next workshop, our next dialogue, it responds to the needs that they have already brought up themselves. So um, sometimes it means that we have to <laughs> prepare something in a week. Um, especially during our summer programming, but that's exactly what we want to do. They're guiding the goals, they're guiding what they want to learn in, um, and that, that teaches us a lot and informs us as well. So we have a question coming in from the audience that's asking, for DREAMers it's important to change public opinion and educate different groups, but in order to affect immigration reform they have to move traditional political levers. How do you balance between the two and the work that you do? Yeah, um, part of what what we've learned and what we're learning is to try to move away from narrative that that hurts the rest of our community. So actually, um, we've seen that the the term dreamers has hurt a lot of people because um, dreamers traditionally means someone like me speaks English pretty good and pretty well, not the best, but speaks English well. Went to went to school here, went to college here. And I'm deemed accept, ex, uh, acceptable to the U.S. because I'm extremely assimilated, extremely assimilated. And yet, what does this mean? And you say, oh, she's a dreamer, which is the epitome of the American dream. My parents are not. So they're easily pushed aside, even though they did the, the, the most responsible thing any parent could have done was survive and, and come to, to a place where they can continue surviving. So that's been the, 
the, a huge challenge within our groups is making sure we're not, so to speak, hurting other communities, whether it's within our own. And also another thing that the immigrant rights movement has been learning was um, there's a lot of anti-black sentiment in even Obama. So for instance, when he announced the executive order to, to, um, to relieve some families of deportation, he said, we'll be deporting felons, not families. Felons is, 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 crim it's a, is, is making sure that we're targeting criminals and felons are usually black black folks and, and black and brown as well, but that's in, inherently anti-black and we don't want that. We, that's, that's not where we want to go and we don't want to we don't want to ever um, use narrative that hurts other communities because um, our experiences are different, but we're obviously we're hurt by the very same systems. Um, I, I do want to throw in there that um, deten uh, the detention system is, a, is obviously another branch of the mass incarceration that we have in the U.S. So fam when families are detained and deported, it's usually under the same companies like GEO and CCA, Corrections Corporation of America, who are profiting and benefiting just like on the incarceration front. So um, separate experiences, both valid. We want to use narrative that doesn't hurt either. So, so let me encourage listeners out there, if you do have questions, to send them our way, and I'll try to make sure that our speakers are able to respond to the questions you submit. I have some others here that I'll get to shortly. Um, as you're looking at success, is, is there a point where, how do you decide what the end point of a particular campaign should be? You know, um, you're in, we're, you're, George, uh, Paul was describing the Not in Harry's Name campaign, which on for more than four years, and I know you guys grappled with, are, did we push too far, should we back away, have we achieved secondary goals, and, and so forth. I'm sure you others have hit that spot in, as well. So, you know, given that it's unlikely you're going to get total victory on what you're working for, how do you decide when enough is enough success? I guess I guess for us, it, we we have to balance it with uh, a calendar. Um, you know, like we budget a certain amount of time uh, for working on a campaign, and we do as much as we can to make that campaign a success within that time frame. But we do bounce around from issue to issue. We have a a calendar built out for the next twelve or eighteen months. You know, that says, okay, in April we're launching our annual. Um, book and literacy campaign. You know, that's April and May. Um, so we do what we can to maximize it within that time frame. And when that campaign is done, we're going to sit down and we're going to evaluate what we did. And then when that campaign comes back around next year, we're going to say, all right, what, what did we learn from last year? What did we learn from the two or three years before that we ran this? And make it better each and every year. I would say that's one of the things we've learned is to, to do these campaigns in cycles, give yourself time to evaluate um, what you did and didn't like about a campaign, what was successful and what wasn't, um, and then you know we're able to revisit that. Another campaign we've got occurring on an annual basis is our economic inequality campaign, uh, which is based around the Hunger Games movies. Those come out once a year each November, so our, our final installment of, of that kind of themed campaign happens this November and each year we learn from and expand upon our previous year's efforts. 
How about the the others? How do how do you how do you decide when enough is enough and you reach an endpoint on an effort or is that not a decision you're you're you face, Chad? I guess I guess in our case is that we're in the we're in the middle of that right now in the sense that I love the phrase the the very long game that that, that Paul brought up and that's that's a very similar approach that a similar view that we have is that we're playing a very long game by necessity, uh, so. We haven't had to encounter that problem, but we've had to encounter the opposite problem, which I think might also be helpful, which is when do you decide that enough is enough and something is either a failure or you shouldn't be involved in something anymore? Because I think it's, you have to, those are sort of the same decision, both sides of the same, the same decision, right? And we have had to make that decision where um, we were involved with... Uh, with a group of people, you know, pushing for this reform, and I won't get into all the, the boring details, but over time we started to have reservations about uh, about their motivations in, in the reform and what they were trying to achieve, and we had to make the kind of difficult decision that even though we had sunk a lot of time and energy and effort and, you know, brand equity and whatever else you want to you wanna call it, uh, that we needed to get away from that, and um, it's, it's a tough decision to make, but you just always have to ask yourself sort of how much is your integrity worth and if you are really playing this long game why would you saddle yourself with things that sort of in the short run maybe appease people or maybe uh, it, it will be awkward to break away from it in the short run but will, will just, uh, that will jeopardize your potential long run. I'll just second what, what Zachary just said there because that's that's a lesson you always learn the hard way, which is when to call something uh, something you do that is not right. And you you usually realize pretty quickly that it's it's a bad fit and uh, the sooner you can extricate yourself, the better. Because uh, our experience has been going down those wrong paths, everybody on your team knows it, and it starts to really degrade morale to be on that wrong path. So that's that's a great lesson to learn for everybody. And when those warning signs pop up, I, I advise people to heed them. The warning so signs are usually in your gut. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just saying the, no, the, no, the, warning, the warning signs are usually, they're not intellectual. Everything on the, the surface looks fine. Like the numbers are fine and, you know, the prestige and whatever else, all those external symbols are fine. The warning signs are all these kind of stomach-based <laughs> things. You know, you just feel uncomfortable or you feel something is wrong. But it's easy if you're idealistic about a cause to kind of dismiss those things and just say, uh, no, 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 I don't know. It's just like a problem I have. I have some problem with these people or I, I don't know what it is. And you talk yourself out of, out of it. But when you bring it up to your team, like Paul was saying, suddenly everyone says, yeah, yeah, I feel it too. And then you know, you know something bad has happened. So uh, we're getting another question from the audience out there that sort of ties into what you guys are just talking about. So it says, do you ever adjust success and goals midway through with unforeseen or developing external changes? Any examples of your campaign shifting this way? Ilsa, do you have some examples you could contribute on that? or? Sure. Uh, yeah, one of the things was um, for us in the long run, it, it's it's always hard to it's always hard to get people out to actions, um, even when there's 
when there's something huge going on in the news and we're under attack and it's very clear, people will go out in the streets, um, and that's. But the real the real fight is making sure that folks want to keep going out into the streets and um, doing uh, events, rallies, delegations. If if you need to move a politician for something, because probably one of the biggest mistakes sometimes. I've been learning that we kind of sometimes make is holding only, not using technology as a tool, but only as an end. So, for instance, um, while um, online media campaigns, um, we've used a lot of graphics, and the pants have been great. If that's if that's the only focus, and none of us are working to get the people out as well. Um, then it becomes really simple to stay home and that's probably been one of the biggest challenges especially with young folks is that um, technology can sometimes not for, we forget it's a tool you know we forget it's a tool to be complementing um, the hard work it is to be out there um, with our bodies with our voices with each other um, and that technology is supposed to help that, and it's supposed to move that. And believe me, graphics have been really, really great for us. Um, Obama was particularly mad with uh, a deporter in chief one that was going around, and um, we heard a lot of comments that got his attention. But if we don't have that, if we're not backing that up with with people power, it it's it's been a, a huge it's been really detrimental in the past. So. Um, we've been learning that sometimes it's the the only way. You have five people, right? How do we make the biggest splash? Sometimes it's online, but making sure that it's complementary. Thank you. Anyone else? You guys already said a little bit. Did anything else you want to add on this question? Okay. So, as we all know, this is kind of boom and bust in this uh, practice. So. One of the questions we have is when big moments or events have come and gone, how do you keep the energy and interest levels high? So you've had a success. Everyone knows you've been successful. Do they walk away and think you don't need them anymore, or are there ways to build from success to success or ways of at least not having that letdown feeling once you get over the first high of a success? Well, uh for the Harry Potter Alliance, I would say that um, for us the most significant thing that happens when we're successful is it brings new people to our mission and to our work, brings new attention either from the media but also from, from the people we're engaged with. They have a renewed sense of vigor around our work potentially. Um, and I think the way we've been most successful in translating that is in capacity building. We've, we had a couple efforts like in 2010, we did, um, you know, a really successful large-scale uh, fandom-based fundraising effort for relief work following the Haitian earthquakes, um, and that brought so many new volunteers to our staff. And I would, I would say that, like, right now, maybe like 30% of our volunteer staff is still held over from kind of that time period, um, and so we find them to be particularly successful around. Um, capacity building and you know in the case of our more recent wins I think we're we're hoping to leverage those um, more in the institutional fundraising ballpark you know this is now we have the track record we have like the hard wins that you're looking for on your grant applications or whatever and try and leverage that and of course like increased fundraising means we can also continue to build our capacity um, it, 
you know, as an organization and continue to build, uh, improve our, our outreach. So that's, that's, to me, how I think we've best leveraged um, success. Okay, others? Well, we're talking here about success. The opposite is also true, right? Failure creates challenges for organizations. Moments when you get knocked off the horse and you've got to figure out how to keep moving forward despite the fact that you've had a setback. So any insights on how, how your, your, cope, your organizations have coped with, with setbacks of one sort or another? Well, I, I think one, one way to survive uh, failure and setbacks is to, th th there's, this, there's this phrase called fragility and anti-fragility uh, by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I've, I found it to be a very interesting idea uh, for, for building an organization because what you find is that, let's say you've committed tons of money, you've committed tons of people, you have, you have all these people working on something, if it fails, it's a huge failure for your organization, and it's uh, it's humiliating, and you know it hurts morale, and it just it's uh, the the cost is huge because your organization is fragile. So one way to get around that is by making sure that the way you're structured, that any possible downside is not so so down, is not so serious that it's going to wreck the whole the whole game for you. Right, um, so you know, don't spend all of your money on any particular campaign. I mean, don't spend, you know, don't commit all of your people onto the the exact same thing at the same time. If if you think there is this possible downside, if you're if you feel confident that everything's going to be fine, I mean, do what you want. But when you're when you're dealing with these highly risky things, you're worried that say funders will pull out if you uh, if you mess up or something like that then making yourself fragile is the best way not to recover from failure because your, your staff leaves and the, uh, the funders leave and people, people look down on your organization after that. I mean, we haven't had this particular kind of problem so far, but often I, I think some of that has just been because we've been very, very careful with our money and our time and our, and our commitments, and we've also been very careful, like Paul was mentioning, to, to steward your integrity for that that long-term game. So if you if you do those things, it's a way of pr not not being as fragile to all the unexpected things that happen when you're trying to do this stuff. Well, the immigrant rights reform movement is one that's had a number of setbacks as well as grounds gained in the last years, and it's been impressive to see the continued effort there to get out there to educate the lobby in the face of legislative and executive branch, you know, quagmire. So any thoughts from, from you about uh, how, how that has gone? Yeah, probably, um, like there's probably been some, like an internal setback that I can speak on a little bit. There's many setbacks, right, and I'm still learning. Um, I've never managed like a huge campaign with money. Um, funders is actually a new thing to me, but from what I've learned for us, it's been um, taking concessions and as um, as as the end piece, and then using it in our own language. So, for instance, I have a very clear example of that. Um, 
a lot of us start using comprehensive immigration reform as like holy grail or something, um, and saying like we need CIR even the even the folks that um, and then we we have to dissect what is CIR, what is comprehensive immigration reform. In this day and age, saying that pretty much means that conservatives have won. They have won not only narrative, but what the what the reform looks like. They have dictated that reform now means maybe giving a few like a few folks work permits and a long pathway to citizenship. But the most important piece is that they will always get enforcement as part of their bills now, no matter what. Tons of money at the border, tons of money to deport people, tons of money for detention systems. This um, the de detention system a lot, and that's always been the case. Now, now when you hear Obama, you'll hear him say, "What we need to secure the border first. That's he always begins every speech with that. And then if we start repeating that and saying and believing that enforcement needs to be part of any reform, then that's a huge loss. A huge, huge loss, and we need to think about that as we go because that's a new thing. They've invented this this these type of politics that includes always enforcement at the at the at the forefront instead of the human beings that we're saying we're fighting for. Because at the end of the day, if enforcement is included and a few folks benefit, everyone else left that's that that's migrating right now is going to be hurt is going to be hurt tomorrow. <laughs> so. Um, I'm trying to think that that's a huge thing that we're having that conversation with a lot of the people that I work with, with a lot of our families. That reform doesn't have to look that way. That's a that's a new thing, and we shouldn't we shouldn't take their language. We should make we should we should push for our own demands and um, be really, um, for lack of a better, be really proactive about that. Okay, we're almost out of time. Let's. The last question I'm going to throw out there is. Once you've reached an endpoint on a campaign, either it was success or a failure, how do you set the benchmarks for the next goals? How do you think about what what should happen next at the end of that process? Well, um, for us, uh, you know, we continue to learn from from what we do. Um, and we continue to be ambitious in our thinking, uh, but you know, moderate that ambition on you know what we've learned from from our past campaigns, um, and you know, coming off of the, <laughs> it's funny because we're having this internal discussion right now, coming off of the the win around the chocolate campaign, and uh, there's there's so many, I'll say during that week we announced the win, we all of a sudden got all like a crush of inquiries um, around like fair trade or lab, um, you know child labor or whatever it was there was a lot of people wanting to work with us and we're like but wait a sec we're not an organization that works on that issue we're an organization that used fandom to work on that issue so uh, we kind of like check ourselves we we have the success we check ourselves and are like Okay, what is the best fit for us going forward? Um, not necessarily for what other people want us to do. Um, and and we were really well prepared to handle that question. Um, we just had done like a whole bout of strategic planning, so we kind of revisited our our mission, and and we're really it was a perfect chance to like you know run a do a trial run on that. So um, 
I feel I feel really strongly that we'll have we'll have a good we have a good head on our shoulders going forward for for working with the success of that recent campaign. Okay. Others. All right. Let me, one last question then. If someone watching this this webinar wants to get involved and help your organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Can we just go around the group and suggest some mechanisms they could get in touch with you or make a contribution? So Zachary, why don't you get us started? Sure, thanks. Thanks, Henry. Um, we're at startupcities.org or startupcities.com. Um, we have a couple ways to be involved. One is obviously uh, you, you can make a donation right there on the, on the site. We, we accept traditional forms and also cryptocurrency and other kinds of uh, untraditional forms uh, of payment. But really what we're looking for now um, are also people who want to work with us on particular things we call ventures. These are solving particular kinds of concrete problems in municipalities related to transportation policy, related to you know zoning, related to all, all kinds of different concrete problems in municipalities. We don't have the expertise on to deal with all of those things. So we have this model called a distributed think tank. And the distributed think tank are all these interesting people that have one way or another we've been able to connect with. And we have a way right on our website where you can sign up to, um, to become a part of that and work with other and, and meet other interesting people involved in those kinds of things. Thank you. Um, for us, it's, um, you know, we want to keep partnerships and make sure that we're offering places for people to get involved. So um, with the, I've been mentioning over and over, with the memos of executive action, there is an implementation process. So for the folks that do qualify and those that don't, we'll make space and, and dialogue around that. We're going to have a, uh, our foundation is helping with a huge immigration, uh, sorry, no, it's a clinic, a legal fair at the at a nearby high school in LAUSD. Um, and it's uh, the Miguel Contreras Learning Complex on May 30th. This is um, a, a really critical time because a lot of community members will need one-on-one -on -one time with uh, a lawyer. And there'll be about 80 to 100 lawyers. We're going to need a bunch of volunteers. So um, if anybody would like to get involved, definitely, that's, that's a possibility. My email is uh, ilse at miguelcontrasfoundation.org. You can find us on the website, too. So appreciate that. And Paul? Um, well, you can find the Harry Potter Alliance online at uh, thehpalliance.org. Um, and we, we're pretty active on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook. Um, you can definitely keep tabs on our work there and engage with us. Um, the other place I would say is if you're interested in being a community organizer, um, you can start a chapter. It, if you're high school, college students, or community members, uh, it's, it's all good. You can bring people together in your own community and you know, work on your local issues through the lens of popular culture. We don't just work with Harry Potter. We work with um, other works like The Hunger Games or, um, you know, John Green's books, if you're a nerd, shout out to all the nerd fighters out there. Um, and let's see, uh, you know, obviously you can donate, and we do look for, we have a couple um, volunteer positions open, um, and you can find those uh, through our website. And, um, you know, I'll say one or two quick other things. Uh, we do have like a, a pilot program 
if you're a librarian, we've got a few library chapters. We're kind of developing that as like a, a more specific type of chapter and community chapter model. So um, if you're a librarian interested there, and uh, we also have that um, leadership conference, um, leadership training conference I mentioned earlier, and if you're uh, an educator around there, we'd, we'd probably be looking for folks um, to help with that kind of a project. Um, so there, there's a few ways. Well, on, be on behalf of uh, the Connected Learning Network and the Media Activism and Participatory Politics Research Group at USC, I thank our speakers for your, being generous with your time and your insights, and I thank our listeners for tuning in for this. I remind you that we're throughout the month doing Twitter gatherings and webinars around some of these themes, and we encourage you to keep keep following along as we have hopefully some very good discussions about the state of young people and activism in America today. That's it.